I'm Shelley Schlender. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, December 15th, 2020. Coming up, we hear why a scratch and sniff test might find COVID better than a temperature check. The loss of smell with COVID typically lasts for a week versus one and a half days for fever. And we join a local Boulder team creating a Paleolithic, not bonfire. They make a bone fire. I think this is a majority of the fires going off of the animal fats and the marrows that are dripping through there. I think most of the wood's been consumed at this point. Dan Laramore, you're a data cruncher. You're a data scientist there at CU Boulder, and you have figured out a new way to look at COVID that has to do with the scratch-and-sniff test. Yeah, that's right. Well, we know that testing remains in short supply, both in Colorado and around the country. We started trying to think of other ways where we could get a lot of information in people's hands quickly with rapid turnaround tests. People may know that if you try and go into a hospital these days, you may get screened for a temperature. But it turns out temperature is really not a great symptom to screen for. It doesn't occur in that many people with COVID. It occurs in a lot of people who don't have COVID, and it doesn't last very long, only about a day and a half on average. Temperature just makes us feel like we did do a test, but it doesn't really keep anybody safe. That's right. The CDC did a big study of temperature screenings at airports for COVID and found that they really didn't catch very many cases at all. And so some have called temperature screening safety theater as opposed to actual safety. Safety theater. Well, how does a scratch and sniff test surpass safety theater of temperature checks? Let's just compare these two symptoms. The loss of smell with COVID typically lasts for a week versus one and a half days for fever. Second of all, rather than occurring in 20% of people where fever does, instead with loss of smell, it occurs in around 80% of people when a standardized test is used. 80% is quite a lot. You know, I think for a lot of folks, saying that 80% of people lose their sense of smell to some degree with COVID will sound high. But what we found is that if you ask people to self-report that loss of smell, only about 50% say they've lost a sense of smell. But if you use a standardized test where I give you, let's say, this panel of scratch and sniff problems and a multiple choice test where you have to tell me which of these things is it that you're smelling, then the prevalence goes up to around 80%. Then you have this matched with an app that you can put on an iPhone or another portable device so that you can check people by scratch and sniff and check the app. And you can say, you're likely free of COVID or you're likely not. The key is you need to not know what smell is lurking behind each one of those panels. And you need to be given a quiz because if you can do this multiple choice test, that's very different from asking yourself whether or not you can smell the cup of coffee who smell you know really well. How do you do a scratch and sniff test without everybody studying the cheat sheet ahead of time to know what they're scratching and sniffing? The cards are randomized from card to card. So you might pick one up and your first answer might be strawberry and the next one is popcorn. But for me, it could be licorice and fireworks. This is a test that could be 50 cents for the scratch and sniff as opposed to $100 for a typical screening test with a PCR-based system way less expensive, but we're going to get these vaccines. Will that mean that the vaccine will take care of COVID before we can get this scratch and sniff test into production? We know that for most people, the vaccines aren't going to actually be in our arms for months and months through the spring 
into the summer, maybe even as late as next fall for somebody, let's say, like, like me. What we need are some solutions that can help us out of the current moment. We just surpassed 300,000 people dying in the U.S. alone, and cases and hospitalizations are as high as they've ever been. While the vaccine can't come soon enough, I think we really need more tools for now, particularly those that you can use at home that preserve privacy and give you the information that you can use to protect people. Couldn't anybody use the scratch and sniff test? How soon? Who would make it? The company whose product I've used is called You Smell It. They have an FDA registration um, and they've submitted for one of these emergency use authorizations for use with COVID. My understanding is that they've got a couple clinical trials in the field now and they're awaiting uh, results to be written up. These are tests that in an ideal scenario, you could just have shipped to your home. And at a lower price point, you could take a week's worth of tests for less than a fancy cup of coffee. It doesn't sound like it's going to be a holiday present that you can get, but I'm sure that CU Boulder will let people know when this is actually something that you could do at home. Yeah, you know, our contribution here was really to look at the modeling and try to understand, based on different unknowns, when exactly does loss of smell kick in? How long does it really last? And what fraction of people can we detect it in? We know that it'll catch some cases, but how many will it actually catch? The modeling really lets us know that um, it should be actually highly effective. And now we just need the tests and the studies in the field to back that up. Well, Dan Laramore, thank you, CU Boulder, for your data analytics, looking for cost-effective ways to test people for COVID-19 at home. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. When we come back, we'll share a story about Ice Age bone fires. Stay tuned. I'm Shelley Schlender. Today, we'll take a look at what it's like to make a campfire. And not just any campfire. The origins for this one go back over 20,000 years ago, when Ice Age people lived in some of the coldest regions of what we now call northern Russia, places like that. Even today, winter temperatures in that region can get colder than minus 70 degrees Fahrenheit. That's minus 70 degrees. In just a little while, we're going to join a team of volunteers from the Boulder area who are going to try and make a campfire that's similar to what Ice Age hunters used 20,000 years ago. But to begin this story accurately, we'll start at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. We're a few basements down below the regular exhibits. We're in the brightly lit collections rooms. You can hear a school group having a tour. Meanwhile, museum staff are opening a long, deep bin filled with big bones. The staff are handing a bone to a Colorado archaeologist. The bone is big, about the size of a wood log. The archaeologist uses both hands to hold the bone. The bone is from the southwest U.S. It's a leg bone from a bison. Uh, this is a bison metacarpal, which looks like a lower leg bone. This bison bone is not bone white. It's stained the color of tea, probably because it's over 10,000 years old. And that's not all. 
Some of these ancient bison bones show evidence of cut marks. The femur? Yeah, there's a femur. With, it may be the, the very one I'm thinking of. It's got like this big, he's got a big gouge mark in it. It's like it was cut with some kind of a big scraping tool or something. This means 10,000 years ago, these bison had been hunted. Scientists used to believe that humans only arrived in North America two, 3,000 years ago. The fact that gouge marks are in a 10,000-year-old bone changed our understanding of when people came to the southwestern U.S. The archaeologist who's holding this leg bone says that bones also offer clues about 20,000 years ago. Let's hear more from the man holding this ancient bison bone. He's archaeologist John Hoffaker. My name is John Hoffaker. I'm research faculty at the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research at the University of Colorado Boulder. I'm an archaeologist and a paleoanthropologist, and I research Ice Age sites where people used bone fuel very heavily. It's worth repeating. At the Ice Age sites Hoffaker studies in cold places like northern Russia 20,000 years ago, people made campfires by burning bone. Here's Hoffaker explaining why. 20,000 years ago, there were a lot of large animals with big bones. Animals that live off grasses, like steppe bison and woolly mammoth. Wood was extremely scarce. There may have been, at the most, in some of these places, uh, woody shrubs, like willow and dwarf birch. And so people made use of alternative fuels other than wood. They had to find another, an alternative type of fuel. Their alternative fuel clearly was bone, because bone ash shows up in, in many of the archaeological sites that I have worked at. During the Ice Age, the burning of bone was commonplace, but few people know how to do that today. Those scientists who've tried often warn that it's an awful ordeal. It's hard to get a bone fire hot enough to burn. Some people report that it smells horrific, like when you're at the dentist and your tooth is getting drilled and you smell that hot smell of burning protein. But Ice Age people probably benefited from a fire, even if it was smelly. A campfire would help them stay warm. It would help keep hungry predators away. It would give them light. So even though a bone fire might not be easy to make, and it might smell terrible, John Hoffaker wants to make a bone fire. With our experimental bone fire, you know, we're trying to get a better feel for how difficult is it to do it when you're actually doing it yourself rather than just simply thinking about a description of bone ash in an archaeological report or a book. That's the wrong story. Six volunteers are curious about bone fire. Now they're standing with Hoffaker in a snow-covered corner of a cow pasture donated for the bone fire experiment. My name is Josh Steinzik. We're in northeast Boulder County, one of my grass fields here, and we're trying to start a fire out of bones. <laughs> They're standing in winter jackets and boots. The sound you're hearing is Henry Ballard using his homemade version of a Paleolithic bow drill. Well, the really embarrassing thing would be if I started burning that. And... <laughs> it's made of sticks and yarn from his wife, Lynn. Lynn likes to knit, which explains the yarn on the bow drill. Henry bows the fire drill back and forth, sort of like someone might play a violin. The fire drill twirls a stick that's pressing against a handful of dry leaves and grass. Yeah. You want to feel hot stick. You got friction. The tinder's getting hot. It's making smoke. Here we go. Look at that. 
Interesting. There's actually smoke coming from just a few minutes of the bowing of those sticks. That's the voice of Amber O'Hearn. She's got a special interest in the Ice Age because she basically eats an Ice Age human's diet, meaning she eats no plants, only meat, meat fat, organ meats. She says this style of eating helps her health. She's organizing a carnivore conference for later this spring, which will include medical doctors and scientists talking about a no-plant diet. She's here in the snow-covered field because she's curious about a lot of things Paleolithic, including how Ice Age people started a fire. Meanwhile, Henry's still trying to get the fire drill right. The fire drill slips. The smoke fades. Henry shrugs. I am not dreaming that it's going to happen. <laughs> to start the Ice Age campfire, archaeologist John Hoffaker cheats a little. Oh, I'm just trying to get this going here. Do you hear that click sound? Rancher Josh Steinzik explains. We tried a bow drill. That's a lot of work. So we went to our methods with a Bic lighter. We got fire. It's going to catch. Volunteers add sticks. Orange flames grow bright. Amber O'Hearn, the modern-day carnivore, says that so far this campfire smells pretty good. It smells like coziness in the wintertime. I haven't been around a fire outside <laughs> um, in the wintertime. I'm not sure if I've ever done that. It's common to have bonfires in the summertime, in the evenings, and it's nice to have a fireplace in the wintertime inside, but this is a different experience. The big challenge here is, once we get this going, is to get it hot enough to, to ignite the bone. Hoffaker says that making a bone fire will be difficult. You have to get temperatures up uh, more than 100 degrees centigrade higher than you do when you're igniting a bunch of wood. Let's pause here just to clarify something. To burn bone, the fire will need to be 100 degrees centigrade higher overall than the temperature needed for igniting wood. For those of you who prefer Fahrenheit, Hoffaker has just said that a bone fire only ignites when it's 200 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than what's needed to simply ignite wood. To ignite a bone fire overall, it means a temperature approaching 700 degrees Fahrenheit. To raise a campfire's temperature, volunteers toss in not big wood logs. They stick to dinky branches and twigs. This simulates the twiggy shrubs used by Ice Age hunters. Where we find all this evidence of the burning of bones in places like central Russia or in Alaska, we always find, almost always find, little traces of wood charcoal. And very often when we identify the charcoal, we find that it's these woody shrubs. The sticks have been burning half an hour when Hoffaker adds the rib cage of a deer. Okay, so I'm going to try a rib cage here. So ribs sizzle. The flames go high. Watching the bonfire is Dustin Goodyear. Goodyear butchers deer for hunters. So this is a deer carcass that was cut up just a few hours ago over to Rappo Meat Company in Lafayette. So it looks like it's got quite a bit of fat on it, which means the animal ate well. And uh, the sizzling sound is mostly that fat burning off, which is appearing to be very flammable. The fat burns off the rib cage hot and fast. Orange flames leap against a dusky blue twilight sky. See if we can reach the ignition temperature of bone, which is high. It's over 350 degrees centigrade. It's much higher than wood, so it looks like maybe we're getting there. 
I can tell you it's making me hungry right now. Yes. <laughs> I could go for a rib chop right now. Well, I was just going to throw another rib cage on here. Since we're having good luck with ribs today. But while archaeologist John Hoppaker's team has been burning bone now, after all, they're burning the rib cage of a deer, this is not really a test yet of burning bones the way hunters did 20,000 years ago. That's because right now it's the grease on the outside of the rib cage that's been burning. And also the wood. This fire is mostly being maintained by adding sticks, a lot of sticks. The denser bones burn more slowly, so they last longer. I want to, we want to get the, you know, the bone itself burning. And that's where we'll get that smell, which I, we still aren't getting. You know, the class, you know when you go to the dentist and you're, the dentist is drilling and the drill gets really hot? It's this really kind of bad smell. Oh, I imagine the bone is going to smell awful. Because <laughs> you always hear things like, oh, the smell of burning hair, things like that. But maybe it'll actually smell good. I'm interested to find out. Hoffaker's team adds a deer leg bone, which has thick bone encasing a very fatty marrow. The fat is in the middle, in the marrow. And when this leg bone gets added, nothing happens to the fire. They add more leg bones. The flames turn to smoke and soon are in danger of going out. Josh Steinsick's son is here. He says this part is not very pleasant. Smoke is like kind of like really hot and it, it does not feel good when it gets in your eyes. There's signs that things are falling apart in places. Henry Ballard says that between the deer legs on the fire and the cold, damp weather, the campfire is being smothered. So the wood is, is wet. And you have to dry the wood out before the wood will start to burn. We're going to get it. All this while, Lynn Ballard has been constantly tending the fire with her husband, Henry, with the archaeologist, John Hoffaker, with rancher, Josh Stanzik, with deer butcher, Dustin Goodhue. We can make fire. <laughs> yes. These volunteers are accustomed to camping in the woods. They know campfires. Right now, they're constantly intervening, mostly without any words between them, just lots of grabbing of sticks and adding them into strategic places in the fire and finding places to breathe onto the fire to keep it going. It's constant attendance, and this is just for fun. At any time, if any of us got cold, we could just go over to our cars, turn them on, and start getting warm in there. It would be different trying to get a fire started on a night when it's 70 degrees below zero Fahrenheit, minus 70 degrees. That's something Ice Age humans had to face, and sometimes perhaps it was hard like this. Here at this modern attempt at a bone fire, adding all that wood is working. The billows of smoke start to settle into a stream. The flames grow stronger. Lynn Ballard finally looks up from tending the fire. Well, we got the fire started up again. Well, <laughs> there's plenty of wood here. Archaeologist John Hoppaker is looking disappointed. So we're feeding it here. He's trying to get the fire's temperature higher. We're, we're, we're feeding it uh, like mad. Stars twinkle in the sky. The fire is mostly sticks being added like mad. Goodyear lifts a leg bone out of the fire and shows that while it's not really burning, it might be cooking. So if we crack this open, we can get a fair amount of marrow out of this. Goodhue swings a mallet and cracks the bone. He roasts the marrow bone some more, then gives everyone a taste, including archaeologist John Hoffaker. Bone marrow is very tasty. It's filled with fat and grease. It's good stuff, especially if you live in a cold place. But even though Hoffaker is upbeat about the bone marrow, 
He's not happy with how much wood it's taking. He's been at archaeological sites dating back 20,000 years. He's read the literature, and he knows this is not a bonfire yet. We have a nice fire going here, but it's, you know, it's, mo it's mostly the wood. I think we're burning relatively little of the bone here. You know, we're, we're mostly, we're, we're burning off the grease and the fat, and um, much of the bone is, is, um, is not burning here. I think it's maybe because the fire isn't quite hot enough. But at least it's hot enough to grill another common food for Ice Age humans, which was fatty meat. One of the volunteers here tonight is a friend of modern carnivore Amber O'Hearn. I'm Siobhan Huggins. I independently research cholesterol, the immune system, and metabolic syndrome. Yeah, so we were just talking about how we were going to eat these beautiful steaks and pork chops, and we have no plates because that's not very Paleolithic. There's something supremely satisfying about eating meat with your hands. It's just freshly cooked. How is it? Good. Excellent. And Chauvin Huggins asked archaeologist John Hoffaker what he thinks about this effort to make a Paleolithic bonfire. Do you feel you've learned anything from yeah. doing this? Uh, well, I, I think I, I, I had a suspicion, you know, based on you know what I'd read and um, that it was that it was you know it was going to be a challenge to uh, to manage this fire to, to you know to burn bone for several reasons, and so I guess you know I'm not surprised that. That turned out to be the case. It is a disappointment. For thousands of years, in the coldest part of the Ice Age, these bonefires were the way that people stayed warm, that they scared away predators, and they cooked their food. Evidence of bonefires have appeared on hills, in valleys, and they've appeared in the center of incredible structures called mammoth bone huts. John Hoffaker co-authored a paper in the journal Antiquity about one of these recently discovered huts. These are huts made 20,000 years ago from hundreds of mammoth bones. When modern scientists fit the bones together, they find the mammoth bones make a domed structure that probably Ice Age humans covered with animal heights to keep in warmth. The bone fire was at the center of these mammoth bone huts. Ancient humans made bone fires. Today, we modern humans, we can't do it. Even though it's been disappointing that the team hasn't made a bonfire, Hoffaker says there's a magic to any campfire at night, and it must have been even more special for Ice Age people. We now know that people had invaded the Arctic at least as early as 32,000 years ago. We have, these are the first people who were living in a place which, for many months out of the year, was completely dark. There was no sunlight whatsoever. Fire was the only light they had. If you're out camping, and it gets dark, it's nice to have a fire to sit around. It's not only contributes heat, but it contributes light. Then there's something about the fire. It seems somehow quieter. There's less smoke. The flames have settled into a lemon yellow. They're more clear now, but yet they're hot. No, this is lasting way longer than a wood fire. It is. It's amazing. So I've never seen a fire last this long. To a certain heat, 
They really do. They're like coal. They throw, they throw a chunk of pine on there and it goes, it's all gone. Yeah, the thing is we've hardly fed this at all for like the last, what, 30 minutes. And, um, I mean, it's amazing. We, I threw one bone on there and you can get going for a while. But um, you know, this has been burning away very nicely here for some time. I think this is a majority of the fires going off of the animal fats and the marrows that are dripping through there. I think most of the wood's been consumed at this point. The team observes that the heated marrow seems to drip out gradually, igniting only when it's exposed to air. It's almost like an oil lamp. And it doesn't smell awful, like drilled teeth at a dentist. Shobin Huggins says it's got a different smell. The smell is a bit like a clean wax candle sort of smell. It's very refreshing almost. It's definitely lasted longer than most woods, especially in Colorado. The, the aspen and the pine would burn a lot faster than this. Josh Steinzik wears leather ranching gloves. With his hands protected in this way, he reaches into the edge of the fire and picks up a piece of charcoal. Only this is not wood charcoal. It's what's left of a bone, a deer leg bone. It crumbles in his hand. The bone gets brittle. Once it gets going, the bone burns quite well for quite yeah. a while. Archaeologist John Hoffaker finally looks content. Uh, some of the bone is burning, yes. He watches the fire. As we were saying, I mean, out here in the darkness here, it's cold, there's snow in the ground, and the fire is kind of the center of our universe here. Archaeologist John Hoffaker plans to try more bone fires to better understand the lives of Ice Age humans who lived in cold, dry places 20,000 years ago. For How on Earth, I'm Shelley Schlender. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced and engineered by me, Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Edie Hill's album, Clay Jug. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303 303- 447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Shelley Schlender.